But let me go ahead, begin us with reading Psalm 2. I think just hearing the Psalms out loud, I think does something to our hearts. So I, I like to be able to read it out loud for us through the whole Psalm. So let me go ahead and read uh, the second Psalm. This here is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cores from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is an amazing truth. It bounds full of life. It teaches us how to live, teaches us how to think. It, it trains our emotions, our feelings to be directed towards you. Father, your word reveals who you are, the great majestic king of the earth. And so let us come in submission to your word, to study it, to be held in reverence by it, and to continue to come to you to worship you. Thank you, God, for this time. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Pray all this in your name. Amen. We, we love, I'll say most of us, will probably be pretty interested in conspiracy stories, right? It, they're just somehow they, they tickle our fancy. We, we love to just hear about, you know, just secret groups, right? Secret groups of rebels just, acting behind the scene, pushing all the buttons, just controlling everything, right? Looking to topple authorities or gain control of a certain sector or space or people. It, we, we tend to be interested in conspiracy stories because they're really talking about a battle of control, right? A battle of who truly has the hand on the steering wheel, who's directing the, the course of time, the events of history. Who's truly in charge? Who's in authority? Psalm 2 here presents to us a battle, a, a wrestling match between man and God, between nations and God, between the people of this earth and its creator. Psalm 2 gives us all this. And I titled this sermon, King the World, because you know, in basketball, we played this game called King the Court, where you battle one-on-one until we see who's the last man standing, until we see who truly rules the court over everyone else. Here we see a battle for the world, and we'll come to see who is the king of the world. Psalm 2 is put together into the Psalter in the beginning, in the second place in the Psalms, right after Psalm number one, because it goes together with Psalm one. Psalm one and two act together as an introduction to the entire Psalter. It, it really provides for us kind of what the Psalms are about. Why do we come to read the Psalms? And the reason why we say Psalm one and two is put together is because um, the Psalm one begins with, if you turn back, to Psalm 1, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, we see here the word blessed. Right? And Pastor Hanley preached on Psalm 1 this past Sunday. And he talked about how blessed stands for flourishing, stands for a life that's flourishing, bountiful with blessing, with the 
just deep-rooted joy found in God, found the man who walks with God. Psalm 2 ends, the final line in Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed as well. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, all those who walk with God. These stands as almost like gateposts as we enter into the Psalter. And as we come to see what the Psalms are all about, it's about truly following this path of blessedness. In Psalm 1, it addresses the importance of dwelling with God through his word. Psalm 2 details how that looks like, why that's important. Because Psalm 2 gives us the detail of the way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. What we see here is a battle between man and God. We want to divide up Psalm 2. It's really it's divided up into four stanzas. Meaning if you look at your Bible, there's probably a space between verses 3 and 4, 6 and 7, 9 and 10. Dividing up this psalm into four parts. And the four parts, which what we're going to see here is we're going to see we're going to have first man's plan. Then we're going to have God's response to that. Then we'll have God's plan and how man should respond to that. And so the first thing we'll see here is man's plan, the people's rebellion. The people's rebellion, verses 1 through 3. And we see here, starting in verse 1, it begins with a question. And this question is a semi-rhetorical question. Uh, it's, it presents really one way to live and, and really presents a question of why one should live this way. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? Why go down this undesirable alternative of life? It's like asking the question, why be a vegetarian? Or why go drink coffee at Starbucks, right? It just makes no sense. It, it boggles the mind. We see here, we see our question that the psalmist, and most, most scholars attribute this psalm to David, but it's not said here, so we don't know. Um, so I'm going to say, call him the psalmist. The psalmist, the one who wrote Psalm 2, looks upon this world and questions, why do these nations, why do these people act the way they do? Why do they follow down this path, this, this way, this wicked path that shows no logic? The psalmist here is simply dumbfounded and amazed at the nations, wondering what are they doing? You see here, he questions, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in, in vain? And the word here, nations and peoples, the nations and peoples, typically in the Old Testament, when you see those two words put together, they're talking about the enemies of Israel. Meaning those who don't have a personal covenantal relationship with God, they do not know Yahweh. It's typically used to describe them. It says here that the nations rage. Uh, and, and this word rage, the, the literal translation of this is people assembling together in a noisy manner. And so they're assembling together. They're coming together in conspiracy against the Lord. Because it says here right after is that the people are plotting. They're plotting something. Now the word plot here is interesting. Because if you look back in Psalm chapter 1, in Psalm chapter 1, in verse 2, it says here that the blessed man, the man who walks with the Lord, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that word meditate, it's the same word for plot here in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. And on Sunday, Pastor Hanley was explaining how the word meditate is this deep inward kind of groaning, this growl. It's, it's this outward sound noise that's being made when we think about this meditation. It's not just reading silently, but it's this, out, it's this utterance of, of whatever is on your heart. And so to say we meditate on God's word is that God's word is so deeply rooted in our hearts that we utter it. 
out in our lives. We live it out. But here, this, this utterance here is different. This then we see here in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, the people plotting this groaning, this utterance is more like an active muttering, a whispering amongst each other, this scheming, plotting people coming together, these whispers that you hear in the air conspiring against the Lord. These are people who in their hearts hate God. And so they're plotting against him. But the reason why the psalmist here is questioning them is because they're plotting in vain. They're plotting in vain. They're, they're doing all this because there's no point of it at all. And we will see later on why the psalmist think this way. But as we go to verse 2 and 3, we see kind of what, what exactly are the peoples and nations plotting about. Verse 2 and 3 reveals their plan. And we see here, it says that the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. We see it's the kings and rulers of the people who are coming together with the nations, with the people. The kings and the rulers are the ones leading this rebellion. They're the ones who are coming together with everyone else to take the stand against God. The, the, the phrase here to set themselves is this taking a stand. It's like, it's like everyone linking arm to arm to form a wall against God. What we see here is a holistic attack against the Lord. That all of humanity, not just individuals, but the nations, the countries, the societies, the cultural movements are all warring against the Lord. And they're conspiring against him. And it says here that they're conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed. His anointed is speaking about the son of David. It's speaking about the Davidic king, a, 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 a line from David who will remain on the throne. This is talking about the Davidic covenants. The covenant that God made with King David, the king of Israel, that the Messiah, the, there's, there will be one day a son who will sit on the throne forever. And this brings an important theme that we will see throughout the Psalms, that this is about a king ruling over his kingdom. Here we find that the Lord and his anointed are being schemed against, are being conspired against. The people are against them. And they're saying to them, let us burst their bonds apart, cast their cords from us. Here the nations, the people are trying to break free from the Lord and his reign. They want to break free from God. They want to be released from God. And so they are attacking God. And now if we were to think about this, right, in a more humanistic, historical way, just kind of bringing it back down to earth, really these nations are attacking Israel, right? They're, they're attacking the nation of Israel, but by attacking Israel, God's holy nation, you're really attacking God. There's a spiritual warfare going on, though, yes, physically is against Israel. There is a spiritual warfare going on against God. And this is what we have to see today, because today we have all these things around us. The world today is still trying to break free from God. Right? We, we just think about our culture. We think about what's going on around us. And yes, we are dealing with physical things, right? We're, we're dealing with laws. We're dealing with politics. We're dealing with wars. We're dealing with COVID, right? All these things are physical realities around us. But behind all that, there's still a spiritual warfare that's happening. The world today is still trying to break free from God. And for instance, we can see that in our culture, that the very notion of God is, is something that people don't want, right? To consider God, the idea of God, oppressive and unjust. That's what our culture would tell us. And so we see Christian ideas and, and morality, Christian morals, just simply outright rejected, right? That's old stuff. That's the wrong side of history. That's not right. We see our society look down upon the church. The church is now an institution that's oppressive, that's outdated. 
and the church can't be trusted. And so it's looked upon with contempt. We think about not just even our secular society, think about other religions around the world. Other religions hate Christianity because as Christians, we claim to hold the truth and we go out and evangelize that truth. We are told to go proclaim to the world this truth. And other religions hate that. They hate the fact that we want to convert others to come to know God, to come to know Jesus. But not even just looking upon the world and their attacks against God or the, the Bible, Christian values. Think about even for us personally. Think about for yourself personally. As believers, we too struggle with this idea of control. Who truly has authority over your life? Because when we think about sin, sin Many sins stem from a desire to break free from God's authority, from God's decrees, from God's word. When we think about sin, we, it's, it's actually dealing with this battle of control. For instance, we lie to avoid, stump, to avoid submitting to the truth. Right? We, we lie because we don't want to know the truth. We don't want to abide by it. Or we grumble and complain because we cannot get what we want. Or we even think about boundaries, right? We all understand there are, you know, sexual boundaries that we are not to cross. But yet we always try to find a line and try to see how close we can get to it. Because we, we wrestle with that. We wrestle with control. We rather not just stay far away from the line. We rather get as close as we can. You see... Sin, sin whispers into our ears, controlling us to hate God's laws. That's what happened with Eve, right? She didn't trust God's one command given to Adam and Eve to not eat that fruit. And yet she looked upon the fruit, got as close as she can, she even touched it, thought she would be fine. But eventually she fell. And this is what we do all the time. We tend to fall in this way because we try to get so close to the line. We try to control our own lives instead of allowing God's word, God's rules and laws being seen as something that's good for us and have that control and direct the way we ought to live. Sin itself is a conspiracy against God. It's a rebellion against this law. And so when we read passages like, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We have to even ask ourselves, why do we live the way we do towards sin? Why does our sinful heart draw us in this way? And so really we see how this speaks directly to us. And that's the world and nations as our own hearts conspire against God, we see in verse 46, God's response to it. And we see the Lord's response. And it says here, starting in verse four, that the readers here are, their, their attention is now drawn towards God. And this is held in contrast to the nation. It says the Lord, he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And, and we, we get here just this description of this almighty God. Now, the description here, the, the imagery, the, the language here is what we call anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphic, right? It's, it's this type of language that uses human terms, human analogies to describe this unknowable God. And what we have to understand is that our human language and our human knowledge and depth cannot fully encapsulate who God is, right? And like for, when we read something like he who sits, now is God really sitting? We don't really know because God is spirit, right? He doesn't necessarily sit, nor does he really stand. We use these terms to describe God because that's the best we can do to describe God. And so when we see here 
that description is that he who sits, what we get this, what we get the idea here from is that God is still sitting on the throne. He's still reigning. He is still king. He is still Lord. That's what this imagery is trying to bring about. He's not literally sitting, but he could be. We just don't know, right? We don't, we can't grasp the concept of God, but look here how God is set in contrast to the nations. He sits as the people take their stand. He sits in heaven while the rulers, the kings on earth are planning all these things. He laughs as the people groan and mutter and plot amongst themselves. The, the Lord here is called the Lord. This, the Lord here in verse 4 is not actually Yahweh. If you notice in your English Bible is Lord with lowercase O-R-D. This is, taught, this is the Hebrew word Adonai. It stands for master. This is the one who rules over the earth, the master of all creation. And it says here that the Lord, the master, holds them in derision. He mocks them. He reveals to them truly just how foolish their counsel really is. This here shows just how powerful, unique our God is. In verse 5, the Lord opens his mouth and he speaks. And when he opens his mouth, the focus here is upon his wrath against the nations. And again, this is another anthropomorphic description of God. Um, the word wrath here literally in the Hebrew is flaring of the nose. But God doesn't really have a nose. This is really talking about him being angry against sin, against these rebellious people, against his own creation. And when, again, when we talk about anger, we talk about God's wrath, and we talk about this throughout Nahum, God's anger is not like human anger. right? When we go through angry phases of our life, when we get mad, it's uncontrollable. It just spurts out. It comes up, and we want to say something, we want to do something, or we just walk away just trying to you know, hold it all in, or we want to vent. But God, he has this control anger, this anger that is about him. Now, we can't fully understand, but it's, we know it's controlled because he doesn't unleash it all the time, but it's there, it's being kindled, it's being burning up in fire, it's growing. God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he's not angry. But the reason why he's angry, the reason why any of us get angry, we really think about it. the reason why we get angry is because we care. It's because we care about something. It's because we there's something about what we're angry of that we really care about. And God here is revealing that he cares about what we as mankind do. He cares about what this world does. He cares about his glory, his honor, the fact that he created everything around him. He created you and me for his glory, and we aren't fulfilling that. God cares. And that's important for us to remember. And he says in his anger, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's this strong emphasis that this is what God is going to do. That none of the plans of the earth, none of the plans of these nations, of these kings and rulers can derail God from setting his king upon the throne. And anytime we think about a king taking the throne, there's always controversy, right? Uh, we think about America, though. One of the things that we do is we turn over our president, right? Every four years or every eight years. And whenever we have a new president, there's a lot of security details because half the nation is probably angry that this president is going to take the, take the office. And so there's security around to make sure they protect the president from being assassinated. But yet, despite all the plotting, despite all the counsel that these kings and rulers are trying to do, God is still going to set his king, his anointed one, onto the throne because he knows they can't touch him. He will set his king on Zion, 
And Zion here, again, the connection to David. Zion is and back in 2 Samuel, it's, it's a city of David. It's Jerusalem, but it's called the city of David. This is the place here. It says here that Zion will be his holy hill. It's, a, it's a holy. It's set apart. This is where God and his king will sit and he will reign over all the earth. God will coronate his king and no one can stop him from doing so. What we see here is that God, God will respond to the wicked ways of the world. He will indeed respond. He will not stand passively. He will rule this world and he will establish his reign. And this comes both as a warning and a comfort to us. A warning because none of our sins can ever be hidden from God. God knows all. He sees all. And God laughs at your plans to hide your sin. And he will show you that he reigns over your life. He will expose those sins and bring into light. This brings fear to all those who rebel against God because they can't just conspire in the dark. They're not the Illuminati. They can't do any of that against God. They, they don't know that God's watching them and he knows exactly what's going on. But this also brings comfort to us as, his, as God's followers, as God's people, as believers. Because this reminds us that God will prevail. That as we walk along the way of the Lord, as we walk with God, yes, we will go through us and down. Yes, we may struggle. Yes, we may fall here and there. But God will prevail. He will indeed, in the end, set his king, rule the earth. He will indeed redeem us. See, when we put our faith in God, it is him. It is him who will see it all the way through. Not us. Not our abilities. Despite our weaknesses, God is our strength and comfort. As we see here, God responds to man's plans in this way. But next we see how God makes his plans. We see here God's reign. Starting in verse 7, God's anointed, his king speaks. And his king says this, I will tell of the decree. And what the king here is saying is that the king will tell you why he has the right to rule. This king will explain to, his, to these readers, to you, why I will sit on the throne. And the reason why is because the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh has placed him there and given him the authority. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, has said to this king. It says here, the Lord said to me, you are my son. You are my son. And this, this here points to, points to God's promise to King David. When he says, you are my son, to this king, it ref, it's a reference really back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God says to David in his covenant with him, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this is what God said to David about David's line. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And what we see here is that God declares this king here, this king that's going to sit on the throne, sit in Zion to be his son. It expresses the relationship that God has with this king that this Davidic king has the rights and privileges because he shares this beautiful relationship with God. He has inherited the rights from God. This year is talking about this great king who will know God personally. Now, we think about this in a biblical fashion in the sense of biblical theology, kind of understanding the importance of this phrase. When God says to this king, you are my son, we have to remember to back to creation, 
how God tr- wanted to relate to humanity, how God wanted to relate to us. When God said he has created mankind in his image, though the word image here is used to describe this kind of father-son, father-child relationship because a child is an image of their parents, right? That, we see that clearly laid out later on in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, it talks about Adam's son. And it says in chapter 5, verse 3, Adam, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And we see here how the image, the image of God, when God has created us in his image, is meant so that we can be his children. Be like a son, but, the, but because sin has corrupted us, because sin has corrupted his image, we have fallen short of fulfilling that. And But when God says to this king, this promised king, that you are my son, this changes everything. Because now we, when we read this, we should long for this king. Right, that the Old Testament Israel, when they read this psalm and they see that God is going to declare a king, you are my son. It is telling us that this king, this future king who will sit on the throne will redeem mankind to fulfill their purpose to become truly human again. An image of God to lead people back to this original purpose, this points to a Messiah. This points to a Savior. This points to a Redeemer. This points to someone we should all long for. That someone will lead us back into this wonderful relationship with our Creator. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The word begotten here literally means to bring forth or to give birth to. And again, this is an anthropomorphic way of describing the relationship between the son, this king, and Yahweh. Because God didn't actually give birth to this king. But God has this relationship with this king as a father with a son. One that shares the same nature. One who shares the same image the same identity the same essence the idea here is that today i mean there's this time a day not when the king is born but a day when this king will be set on his throne and he will be like god a ruler over all the earth and everyone all nations the entire creation will be subjected under his feet Verse 8 and 9 here tells us how the son will inherit the earth. God continues to speak to his son, ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This here shows the son's rightful inheritance. As king, he will rule over the earth. And what we see here is that this is God giving to his son a gift. The gift of creation. The gift of all things, of this world and all who dwell in it. This reminds us that everything around us, even our own lives, is meant to be a gift to the son. This In other words, this world doesn't belong to us. This world doesn't belong to humanity. This world was all created with a purpose to be given to the Son of God. We are created and placed here, yes, with a purpose to take care of this world, to tend to it, to to take to be like a gardener in the Garden of Eden and, and to really flourish in this world, but this world was not created for us. It was created for the king. We are simply stewards here. 
And so the king will have this world and he will conquer all those who oppose him. He will establish his full dominion over all the land. It says he'll do so with a rod of iron representing his strength. And it says here that he'll dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel representing a symbol of victory. This really changes your perspective of our lives, of everything. Because we see here that this world rightfully belongs to God and His Son, not to us. You see, what we get to enjoy in this world is this wonderful privilege to live here and to be abounded by all that is here and to, to really enjoy God's creation. But we are not to use and take this world as if it's our own. Instead, we're given the privilege to steward it, to steward the material riches of this world for God, to steward our lives, our careers, our relationships, our families, our homes, our pets, everything for God. It's like as if you were house-sitting for someone. And you're house-sitting for someone who's rich and they live in a mansion. You get to stay in their house for months and say, you know what? Everything in this house is yours. Enjoy it. Enjoy the spa that's in there. Enjoy, you know, the, the TV, the cable, the sports, go and, you know, eat all the food that's in the fridge. Enjoy it. But keep in mind, when I come back, it should be in order. And God has given us this creation we get to enjoy it. We get to live in it. We get to be blessed to flourish in it. But it doesn't belong to us. And the king will come back to claim what's rightfully his. It changes every, how we think about all that we have. It thinks about everything that goes on in our life. This world and all creation is meant for God and his son. And so this is God's plan. This is God's reign over the earth. And the final stanza gives us how man should respond, how we should respond. That the people's response here is not, not exactly how the people responded to this, but how we should respond to God's reign over all the earth. And it says here in verse 10, Again, addressing, addressing the kings and rulers. He just tells them to be wise. Be wise. And, and here, they're to, to live in a way that's not foolish. To stop conspiring as the Lord. To live a way, a righteous life. Be wise. And it says here, be warned. In the, in the word here, to be warned, literally means to be instructed. In the sense that they were being disciplined. Right? And so God here is showing them, hey, the way you're acting up now, it's not the way you should be. It's like God trying to teach a teenager how to drive slower and how to obey the rules and not try to go off all the time independently. Be wise, be warned. And the psalmist here explains in verse 11 what it means to be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And what we see here is that there is a certain fear and trembling when we come before God because we recognize that he is greater than all things. He is indeed terrifyingly powerful and frighteningly majestic. But yet at the same time, we are to serve him and rejoice in him. And when we see here what it seems to be a contradiction, it's really representing the type of relationship we have as human beings before a holy God. True worship involves all our emotions, not just happiness or peace. All of our emotions and thoughts are directed towards God. It's our joy and grief. It's our hope and despair. It's our peace and fear. Everything must be directed to God alone. All of our emotions, that is true worship. And we see here in verse 12 that we are to worship God by honoring his son, kiss 
the son, meaning serve and pay homage to the coronated king, to the one God has placed on the throne. And while here in Psalm 2, written to Israel, they're, they're thinking about this son, this the David, this Davidic king, not knowing who he is, but he, they know they are supposed to honor him, that this king will be like God and they will lead them out back into a, this covenantal, wonderful relationship with God. But we as a church, as New Testament Christians, know that this king, this son, is Jesus Christ. He has a face. He has a name. And we know him, and it is wonderful that we know him. And we know that this indeed is God's son, because we find out in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God speaking to Jesus as he's transfigured. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But the sad note is, when we reach the Gospels, and we see Jesus Christ come to the earth, the Son of God, ready to take his throne in Jerusalem. He's traveling through. We see here that the Jews at that time in the Gospels did not listen. Instead, the Jews and their leaders, what did they do? They conspired against God. They plotted against him. And they hung Jesus Christ on the cross. Turn with me to Acts. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 28. And we'll see just how Psalm 2 plays out here for us. How Jesus Christ fulfills what was promised in Psalm 2. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24, and says, And when they heard it, they, being the church, lift their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here's a quote from Psalm chapter 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27 explains how this is fulfilled. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. We see here in this passage, we see here in this passage that the Jews and all the people, they planned against Jesus Christ. They hung him on the cross and they gathered against him and they thought they won. But it says here clearly, in verse 28, that they are to do whatever your hand, God's hand, your plan, God's plan, have predestined to take place. We see here, God had the final laugh. The people plotted against Christ. But it was God who predestined or ordained his son to die on the cross so that by his blood, sin may be washed away and all who believe may receive redemption. It is by God's plan that Jesus Christ would die and he will rise up again on the third day so that he can fulfill this psalm and take his place in the heavenly throne ruling over all the earth. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 30. Acts chapter 13, verse 30 says this. But God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to, uh, to the people. 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, fulfilling the second psalm, placed him on the throne. Today, I have begotten you. Jesus reigns today over our lives, over this earth. And everything right now is Jesus bringing the entire creation under his submission, under his authority. And like Psalm 2, we as the church now bear this message of the king to the nations, to the peoples in the earth, to warn them and instruct them of their ways so that they can repent and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in him with trembling. We are called to present this same message in Psalm 2 to the rest of the world so that they can come to know the King, King Jesus. This is the great news. This is the awesome news for all of us. Turn back to Psalm 2 again. Let's finish off the psalm. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Here we see presented to us again two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And in Psalm chapter 1, the first psalm, verse 6, it tells us that the way of the wicked will perish. Here in the second psalm, verse 12, we will perish because the king is angry. The way of the wicked leads to death because the king is angry. Not honoring the king and conspiring against him will lead to your destruction. His wrath will not be abated and he will crush all those who rebel against him. Yet at the end, the final verse, the final line of the psalm presents to us the way of the righteous. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed. For the righteous, they will flourish in life as they follow the king. You see, all of life comes down to this single decision. Do you follow King Jesus or do you rebel against him? And this is what really the rest of the Psalms are about. It's about recognizing that God is king and serving him will bring you great blessing. And so how do you walk in your life? Will you walk in submission to the king or will you walk alongside the rest of the world in rebellion against the Lord? Have you, have you submitted every area of your life to God submitted every area talking about your career your relationships your family your possessions all of it you submit all of it to God every single area every corner of your life do you do so and do you do so recognizing that by submitting to God, submitting to this king, it will bring you great blessing and comfort throughout your life. It brings you great blessing and comfort because the future is written in stone. Jesus Christ, the king, will crush this world and he will bring everything under his dominion and everyone who stands in refuge with him will be blessed. And this brings us great comfort because it comes, it brings us to realize, to have this high view of God, to recognize that all that we have belongs to him, to give him glory. This is our truest and greatest purpose of life. 
this brings us the most satisfaction and joy. And so we can move forward with such courage. Because anything that we are afraid of, we are both reminded that our God is more terrifying, but our God is also for us. And tells us that there is nothing to fear. And so we can indeed go forward with courage, with great comfort, to walk down this way of the righteous that is indeed difficult. It's a narrow road, but it's a road filled with great blessings and joy. Will you walk down this road? Because when you walk down this road with Christ, nothing in this world can bring you down because nothing in this world Compared to the awesomeness and splendor of our great King, Jesus Christ, our God, is the one we fear the most, but He is also the one we find the most joy in. So, our big idea for tonight's message is this find your joy and comfort in King Jesus, who reigns over the world and conquers all who rebel against Him. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised son of David who fulfills the psalm and is indeed the son of God, the king. He is the one who we are to honor, who we are to serve, and who would do so with reverence and fear. This king is our king, and he desires to have you to be with him to follow him. This king is our king. He's King Jesus, and he deserves all the glory and all the praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Psalm 2, that gives us this great picture of Jesus Christ and his full majesty as the Son of God reigning over this earth and lord we are thankful that he did not stay buried in the earth but that lord you raised him up on the third day so that he may rule over all things this is a great hope that we can have that our king is not dead but our king is now sitting on the throne reigning over all things and we are to follow him so, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be enlarged by this and we'll, our hearts will continue to be drawn closer to you and that we, Lord, will come to know you and love you and walk with you. Thank you, God, for sending your son to this earth to die for our sins and to be raised again on the third day to reign over our lives. Let us stand, trust you, and obey you with all of our lives. Be with us during this time for the rest of this night. Pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen.